0: Good morning. Everybody out there awake, ready to go? All right. Hi, Pat. How you doing? You're waving at me. Is something exciting? Oh, you're just waving. All right. That's good. <laughs> How many of you, uh, it's your job in the house to, uh, to empty the dishwasher. Raise your hand if you are the dishwasher emptier in your home. Okay. All right. Now, now, hands, hands down. Now, raise your hand if you rarely ever empty the dishwasher at your house. You rarely ever empty the dishwasher at your house. Okay. Now, in my family, uh, at our house, Casey and I, uh, it, I'm not usually the one who empties the dishwasher. Occasionally, I do, and I, I, uh, I, I carry out that duty. But not normally am I the one who empties the dishwasher after it is clean. But on the rare occasions that I do, I find that I'm able to find a place for everything in the dishwasher just where I think it should go. I mean, it's amazing. I, I take all the utensils out and I find great spots throughout the kitchen where they ought to be. I find uh, plastic Tupperware and I open up uh, cabinets and drawers and just stick them here and stick them there and stick them everywhere. And uh, sure enough, Later that day, as, uh, as after I've done this, this, great, this great duty to my wife, I, I, I've offered her this gift in emptying the dishwasher, not something I normally do. By and large, a couple hours later, I start getting the, uh, the calls from the kitchen. Honey, where did you put the so-and-so? Where did you put this? Where did you put that? And I say, oh, well, honey, I put it where it's supposed to go, right? Right? And she's like, no, honey, it doesn't go here. It goes over there with all the other ring a ling ling dings You know what I mean? And I, and, I, and I look at it and I'm like, well, that doesn't seem like a good spot for it. Why do I bring this up? I bring this up because for my wife, where the dishes are placed, where the things of the dishwasher are placed into the kitchen cabinets is a very specific It's a very specific duty. It's a very specific task. You need to take things. You need to put them in their proper place, right? You need to put them in their proper place. And when they're not in their proper place, it drives my wife nuts. And she she never wants me to empty the dishwasher because I always seem to find some new place to put something. All things go in their proper place. All things go in their proper place. The title of my message today, part two in our series on Ecclesiastes, the series is entitled Vanity Under the Sun and part two, All Things in Their Proper Place. You see, today, Solomon is going to tell us in Ecclesiastes 2, he's going to show us that when you take things out of the dishwasher, you've got to put them in the right spot. When you lay hold of things in life, when you grab hold of pleasure and you grab hold of money and you grab hold of work and you grab hold of wisdom, you've got to use those things in their proper place. You've got to put those things in their proper place. Turn, if you will, to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And we're going to begin in verse 1. For those of you that weren't with us last week, uh, Ecclesiastes is actually... Uh, from the Greek word Ecclesiastes and also then from the Hebrew word Ko'olet, meaning preacher or teacher. And Solomon, King Solomon, writing from about 935 B.C., was known as Ko'olet, the preacher or the teacher. And uh, he, said, he starts his book out, really, in, in Ecclesiastes 1. Just the basic premise of the entire book is this, really quick, briefly. He says, Vanity of vanities, says Ko'olet. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? And so this becomes Solomon's thesis throughout the entirety of the book, that all of life is vain. But of course, we learned last week that this statement can only be understood in the context of looking at this life only. We talked last week about the, horse, the horse's blinders. A horse wears blinders on the sides of their eyes so that they can see where they're going. So that they won't be distracted by the things to the, to the left and to the right. Solomon, in Ecclesiastes, put blinders on himself. Only they didn't cover the sides of his eyes, they covered the tops of his eyes. And when Solomon looked out, he self-limited himself for a time. He put these blinders on. He says, okay, I'm going to look at this only. What is under the sun, apart from God, apart from eternity, apart from life beyond the grave, I'm going to look here only. And that's what he concludes. That all of that is vanity. All the things under the sun, the toil, the labor, the sweat, all of it is vanity. It's worthless. It's meaningless. Absurd. foolish. Like a breath passing by. And so now let's turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2 as Solomon continues this dialogue looking under the sun. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verses 1 through 3, he proposes a new test of the things of this life. And he said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this also was vanity. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish?" I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. So we see here, friends, that Solomon, having already proposed multiple tests in in chapter 1, tests of work and tests of wisdom, now he goes on to other tests of life to find out if there's any meaning to it, to find out if there's any purpose to it. And this test is the test of pleasure. He says, in the wisdom of his heart, he says, I want, I want a life of mirth. That is to say, a life of, of pleasure, of happiness, of festivity. I want a life of mirth. I want to receive pleasure. I want to laugh. I want to drink. I want to lay hold on folly. That is to say, live recklessly or foolishly. Perhaps this kind of life, Solomon thinks, will bring me satisfaction. But really what's ironic about this test at the beginning of chapter 2 is that Solomon gives the results of the test before he even discusses it at length. It's as if Solomon cannot even discuss a pleasure-hungry existence without instinctively knowing its deficiencies. He says back in verse 1, this pleasure test was vanity. It was meaningless. It was empty. A life of pleasure and laughter. It's madness, he called it. Solomon concludes, what does it accomplish? What does it accomplish? I want to say very clearly here that Solomon isn't denying the reality of pleasure. He's not denying the reality of it. He knows that exists. What he is denying, however, is not the reality of pleasure, but the lasting significance of it. And go ahead, if you're filling out your outline there, you can write in the blank, Solomon isn't denying the reality of the pleasure, he's denying the lasting significance of it. Things are pleasurable in life. Many things are pleasurable in life. We eat, we drink, we, we party, we have fun, we enjoy life. They, these things are pleasurable. Solomon's not denying pleasure. He's simply saying there's, there's no lasting significance to it. When I'm looking with my blinders on, and I look at pleasure and pleasure alone, it's fleeting. It's there for ten seconds and it's gone. It's there for maybe an hour, and it's gone. It's there for perhaps a day, and then it's gone. And so I ask us the question, are you consumed with finding pleasure? Are you consumed with finding pleasure? Are you consumed with with feeling good? Maybe it comes by the the drink of wine. Maybe it comes by self-medicating which I think is is becoming more of a rampant problem in our society today. People taking pills, taking drugs, whether it's over the counter or illegal, just to feel a little bit better that day. Are you seeking pleasure? Are you seeking a good feeling all the time? There's a reason why you need to keep taking another drink. There's a reason why you need to keep taking another pill. And that is because it doesn't last. It doesn't last. And so we should know instinctively that since it doesn't last, pleasure cannot be the ultimate meaning of life. Seeking to feel good cannot be where our existence finds ultimate meaning. No amount of pleasure can offer a man or woman an enduring kind of satisfaction. The pleasure soon passes. Solomon thinks, well, if pleasure doesn't work, maybe something else will. So let's move on. Another test. Verse 4, 4-6. through six. He said, I made my works great. I built myself houses. I planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards. I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. Here we have Solomon moving from pleasure to projects. From pleasure to... Personal accomplishments. Solomon thinks to himself, "Well, if 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 the pleasure doesn't work, let's try something else. Let's try let's try to consume myself with projects, with the latest and greatest project or accomplishment." I think this too is uh, indicative of our society. Um, we measure a man or a woman based on what they do, what they accomplish, um, the things that they build, the things that they create. The projects that they complete. The great tasks and responsibilities entrusted to them and that they they build up. Solomon's going to conclude soon here that even this, even personal projects and accomplishments, you're not going to find lasting meaning there. You're not going to find lasting significance there. Are you consumed with the latest project? With the latest accomplishment? When you think of who you are, do you think of plaques on the wall? Do you think of like a diploma on the wall? That's me. That's my diploma. That's who I am. I accomplished that. Do you think of a trophy on your desk? Do you think of something you've made? Do you think I'm worth something because of these things that I can see that I've, that I've accomplished, that I've done? Solomon's going to say to you very clearly, It's not about your personal accomplishments. It's not about your personal projects that you've completed. Not pleasure, that passes. Not accomplishments, they fade away. Something more? Verse 7. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of provinces. And of the provinces. I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men, and musical instruments of all kind. Pleasure passes, okay. Accomplishments we'll soon learn here. Solomon's going to say they, they don't mean nothing. They don't mean nothing. You like that? What about possessions? What about riches? What about money? Yes, maybe that's it. Maybe that's the key to life. And so Solomon acquires all these servants. He has servants born in his house. More possessions than you could ever imagine. He was the wealthiest man in Jerusalem, gathering silver and gold from all the kings of the earth. Israel was powerful then. And they they laid hold of the booty of all of the ancient Near East. They took what they wanted. They won wars. He acquired male and female singers. You know, we watch American Idol on television. Solomon had American Idol in his palace. The delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kinds. By the way, the term musical instruments, they really don't know what that word is in Hebrew. There's some instances where the term means instruments. There's actually other instances in which it means concubines or women. And Solomon, as, as we know, had over 700 wives and 300 concubines. And so it could be that he's saying, I acquired all of, all of these possessions. But money can't buy happiness. Solomon's going to soon conclude that money cannot buy happiness either. Not pleasure, not accomplishments, not possessions. Now, one man put it, uh, however... All I want is the chance to prove that money can't buy happiness. Don't know who said that, but that's, uh, that's pretty good. We know it doesn't, right? We know instinctively, we know it doesn't. We know money does not buy happiness. Because we see wealthy people and we recognize that their lives are just in vain. That their lives are a mess. Their lives are totally corrupt. And so we know know in our hearts that, that money can't buy happiness. But nevertheless, we still want to go for it. We still want to try for it. We still want to gain as much as we can just to see if there's any measure of satisfaction in it. Are you consumed with money and possessions? Are you consumed with how much is in your 401k? Are you consumed with having things? Do you buy and buy and buy just to feel a little bit better? Is that your self-medication? Shopping? Do you need to have the latest and greatest thing to feel like you're a person of significance? Pleasure passes. Accomplishments, they fade away. Possessions, riches, they all turn to rags. Solomon is spiraling downward toward his conclusion in these three areas. Verse 9. Take a look at verse 9 through 11. He says this, So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was the reward from all from all my labor. But then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed, all was vanity and grasping for the wind. And there was no profit under the sun. Uh, it's often the case that we try to... Uh, that that we, look, we find significance and we find meaning in uh, imitating people that we believe have it all together. It's often the case that we, we look upon someone, be it a celebrity, or someone who is smart, or someone who is rich, or someone who is athletic or beautiful, and we get taken in by their persona, we get taken in by their talent, their skill, their riches, And we think, well, they they must be happy. They've got it all together. Friends, Solomon was King Solomon. He was and remains the perennial embodiment of such a person. He was and remains the perennial embodiment of someone who had it all together. He was superior to all. He was great. He was wise. He was rich. He could have anything He wanted, He says in the text. And for us to assume that this man among all has made it, that this man among all has arrived, it's only natural for us to want to assume that. Solomon had every reason to be happy, every reason to be satisfied. He did whatever he wanted, yet even in this, Even in this, he found his lot in life empty, futile, like grasping for air. And by the world's standards, by by, by, by looking at these standards, Solomon had every reason to conclude otherwise about life. He had every reason not to say what he says in verse 11. Every reason not to say it. He had every reason to wipe that verse from the pages of Scripture and to say, yes, in these things, I found contentment. Yes, in these things, I found satisfaction. Yes, in these things, I found total meaning, total purpose. I felt fully alive when I grabbed pleasure, when I grabbed accomplishments, when I grabbed possessions and riches. That's what it's all about. He had every reason to say that in verse 11. But he didn't. Every reason to conclude otherwise, but he didn't. And so now it's up to us whether we are going to accept the conclusion of a man who had every reason to say otherwise Or to ignore his conclusions and go on living as if our quest for pleasure, our quest for accomplishment, our quest for possessions will yield any fruit. As if our quest could ever, in any way, surpass that of Solomon's quest. And Solomon actually warns us. He says, hey, don't go down this path. You can't surpass me. In fact, that's exactly what he says in verse 12. Look at verse 12. He says, Then I turn myself to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. He says, look, I've looked at all avenues here. I've looked at the path of wisdom. I've looked at the path of madness and folly. And by the way, what are you going to do, he says? You who succeed me. You who come after me. What possible path are you going to take? that I haven't already treaded down? What new thing are you going to uncover that I have not already found, Solomon says? I'm the wealthiest. I have more possessions, more accomplishments, more pleasure than any of you. What can a man do who succeeds me? Only what he has already done. Pleasure, accomplishments, possessions. Three things Solomon's discussed thus far. But we're only halfway through this chapter. And now Solomon comes back to chapter 1. He's bringing these things full circle. He's going around and around and around the things of life. In chapter 1, he discussed work and wisdom. And in chapter 2 thus far, he's discussed uh, uh, pleasure and accomplishments and possessions. And now he's going to come back to these two, work and wisdom, from chapter 1, he's going around and around saying, don't you get it? Don't you get it? Listen carefully to what I'm saying. So now we, we return to the topic of wisdom briefly. Take a look at verse 13. Verses 13 on down to verse 17. It says this. Solomon says, Then I saw that wisdom excels folly, as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in, the, are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceive that this same event happens to them all. And so I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. Why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die as the fool?' Therefore, I hated life because of the work that was done under the sun, because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all his vanity and grasping for the wind. Solomon returns to the concept of work here, and and, and this time he, he gives it a little different spin, a little different twist. I love what he says about this topic. He says, I've worked and I've worked and I've worked. I've labored. I've amassed riches. I've worked hard. And yet, I recognize with my blinders on, as I'm looking at the things of this life under the sun, I recognize that all that I've accomplished, I'm going to leave to someone who I do not know what they will do with it. I have no control over what will happen when I pass from this earth and bestow my heritage, my estate, upon those who come after me. Who knows if they're going to be wise? Who knows if they're going to be a fool? This is vanity, Solomon says. The Message Bible translates verse 21 in this way. I think it's powerful. He says, What's the point of working your fingers to the bone? if you hand over what you've worked for to someone who never lifted a finger for it. You work so hard. You work so hard only to have your toil spoiled by another. You put so much effort, so much dedication into something only to have it go to waste because of circumstances outside your control. Only to see foolish workers profit the same or more so than you. I think many of you can resonate with this. In some cases, you're, you're probably thinking of the government, perhaps. <laughs> you've worked so hard, you've labored so long, and yet those who maybe you don't feel have lifted a finger have taken it from underneath you. You've already experienced that, and you haven't even passed from this life. You've seen your hard earned money be frittered away. Then you find your government asking for more from you. And you become embittered by this. You become frustrated by this. And not only that, but what little you do have left when you die, who knows what's going to happen? Who knows if your sons and your daughters are going to treat the money that you've earned wisely? The estate, the heritage that you've given them wisely. Who knows what they'll do with it? In fact, it's often the case, uh, social... Social studies have have, have largely concluded that those who inherit large estates and large wealth, they, they waste it away so quickly. They act so frivolously with it when the money wasn't theirs to begin with. What's the point of working your fingers to the bone if you hand over what you've worked for to someone who never lifted a finger for it? And so Solomon hates this. He says, I hate this. I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all this vanity and grasping for the wind. He had the greatest job in the world, by the way. He was king. Remember? He was king. King of Israel. And he hated it. What might that teach us, by the way, about seeking ultimate fulfillment in our job? I know that... it. it, I think it's some, the statistics are something like 80% and up. 80% of people in the world do not like their job. 80%. I think that's very high, but it's, it's the truth. So that means four out of five of those of you sitting in this audience are probably not, you, you're probably in many ways disappointed with your job. You're disappointed whether it's the compensation you're disappointed with, or the duties you don't feel like you're, you're being asked to do the, the, the duties that you could uh, uh, m- most best accomplish. You think you're being marginalized in the workplace, you think you're being underpaid, undervalued, you're frustrated at the hours? Four out of five. Frustrated at work. This guy had the best job. the best job in the world. Pleasure, possessions, riches, accomplishments. Solomon snapped his fingers and things happened. He had over 150,000 servants building up his home and building up the temple of God. Over 150,000 of them. Could you imagine having 150,000 people at your disposal? Say, so yeah, could you 10,000 do this today and could you 20,000 go over here and build me one of those? Solomon hated it. As he looked at all the things under the sun, he hated it. Friends, you're not going to find lasting satisfaction in your job. So stop looking for it there. You're not going to find ultimate meaning there. You're not going to find ultimate significance in the workplace. It's not there. It's not found there. And it won't be found there with the next job or the next job or the next job. That's not to say we don't strive for something better. That's not to say we don't strive for a better job. But it is to say that we put it in proper perspective. We put it in its proper place. Realizing that regardless of the job or the work that we have, we will always be a little bit disappointed with it. What lasting significance is there, Solomon says, when we pass from this life, we do not take these Our work with us, all our hard work and achievements pass on to others, and who knows what they will do with our estate, with our heritage. Who knows what they will do? And so, there you have it. There you have it Vanity Under the Sun, Part Two All Things in Their Proper Place, Everything is Vain, Life is Meaningless. Your pleasurable experiences will pass. Your achievements will go up in smoke. Your possessions and riches will turn to rags. Your wisdom cannot save you from the grave. Your legacy, your estate, all that you've accumulated through hard work and toil will be left to some fool who will putter away with it. Shall we close in prayer? Is that the end, Tom? As I said last week, there you have it. A depressing, miserable, disheartening word of the Lord. Okay, okay, let's let's finish chapter 2. Let's finish chapter 2. I'm sorry I didn't finish. Let's finish chapter 2. Let's finish. Ready? End of chapter 2. Here we go. Then what is good to have my neck and yours broken and to be thrown into the river, who is so tall that he can reach to the heavens? Who is so broad that he can encompass the underworld? No, servant, I will kill you and let you go first. No, I'm kidding. That is not the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Joyce, will you please show them what that's from? That is from the Babylonian Dialogue of Pessimism. The Babylonian Dialogue of Pessimism is one of many. First millennium, right around the time of Solomon. First millennium B.C., wisdom uh, it, it's, a, it's one of many wisdom texts competing with the book of Ecclesiastes for the minds of the ancient Near East. This text is found at the very end of the Babylonian dialogue of pessimism. And it, like Solomon's text, was passed around throughout the ancient Near East, was passed around from tribes to nations to kings to princes to people And it would be read. It would be read in the city streets. It would be read in the squares and the town centers. Solomon's text would be read and then the Babylonian dog of pessimism would be read. And they would would go back and forth debating which philosophy has it right? Which philosophy has it right? The Babylonians concluded. I should say, if the Babylonians were to conclude Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and 2, this is how they would have concluded it. Because this text, very, very similar to Ecclesiastes 1 and 2, you can't find much difference between the two until the end. And at the end, you see vastly different conclusions. You see vastly different philosophies. One that says, hey, yeah, it's all vain, and so you might as well just kill yourself. You might as well just be drowned in the river. You might as well just, hey, you know what? I'll kill you, you kill me, but, but, Boom. Done. That's how the Babylonians concluded it. That was the way they wished to express the vanity of this life. But it's not the conclusion of Solomon. It's not the conclusion of Solomon. Solomon's conclusion is much, much different. And so let's take a look at verses 24-26. to Solomon says this. He says, Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also, I saw, was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment without him? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to the man who is good in his sight, but to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind." Just a brief technical thing here in verse 25. You'll notice an asterisk at the end there where it says "more than I." Uh, That's a Hebrew phrase that the verb there can, uh, uh, the word there, I should say, can be translated either "more than" or "greater than" or "without." There's actually a a disparity with the word. It's most likely the case that it's actually "more than I," excuse me, "without him" rather than "more than I." And so there's, there's some debate there among scholars. The New King James translates it differently than I have behind me. But fitting the context of the text, it's most likely the case that it's without him. But even if it was more than I, it would still make sense because Solomon is saying, hey, I'm the one who has every reason. Uh, I'm the one who has every reason to know the end of the matter. So who can have enjoyment more than I? Nevertheless, I think it's without him. Moving on from that, Solomon does not conclude like the Babylonians do. He doesn't end his first couple chapters in this way. Neither uh, he, He doesn't say, hey, because all is vain, break your necks and go drown yourselves in the river. He doesn't say that. Neither does he say, even though it looks like it, neither does he follow the path of the Epicureans who said, eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. It looks like he says that, but that's not Solomon's philosophy here. That's not Solomon's conclusion here. And many scholars make that mistake with Solomon here at the end of chapter 2. They assume that here are the beginning points of Epicurean philosophy, but Solomon's not saying that either. He's saying something similar to that, though. In verses 24 to 26, Solomon is taking his blinders. And he's lifting them up a little bit. He's not taking them off completely. But he's lifting them up a little bit. And he's starting to look up. And he's starting to realize that there is certainly more to this life than what I've just said. He's starting to lift his eyes a little bit. And recognize that all of creation, all that we eat... All that we drink, all of our work, all the things that bring us a measure of satisfaction and contentment, these things are gifts of God. They are gifts of God. The scriptures attest to this. In Genesis 1, remember the creation of God. And God looked upon all that He had made, and what did He say about it? He says, God saw everything that He had made, and indeed it was very good. God's creation is good. 1 Timothy 4 4 speaking particularly to the issue of, of food. And, and Timothy, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. Paul's saying, hey, All things that God has made are good. The creation is good. Partake of it. For who can eat? Who can have enjoyment without God? Now, I want to be clear. Verse 24 is not Solomon's final conclusion to the book. That will come at the end of the book. But it does lead us on the path toward looking at life differently. Looking at life differently than we've ever done before. Solomon says eating, drinking, working, pleasure, accomplishments, possessions, these things are gifts from God, but they are not an end in and of themselves. And Solomon's conclusion here in this, at this time in his writing, it's not his final conclusion, but as he's, as he's moving toward a final conclusion, he's saying use God's gifts properly. Use God's gifts properly. Derek Kidner has a fantastic quote, which to me opens up the entire book of Ecclesiastes. He says this, "...in themselves and rightly used," The basic things of life are sweet and good. Food, drink, and work are samples of these things. And Solomon will remind us of others. What spoils them? What spoils them is our hunger to get out of them more than they can give. What spoils the basic things of life? Eating, drinking, pleasure, money, wisdom, you name it. What spoils those things is when we try to reach out and pull from them more than they can offer us. What spoils them is our hunger to get out of them more than they can give. Solomon says enjoy them, but put them in their proper perspective. They will not give you lasting peace, lasting hope, lasting significance. They cannot do that. That is why 17th century French philosopher Blaise Pascal said this. He said, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person, and it can never be filled by any created thing. It can only be filled by God, made known through Jesus Christ. Pascal made a number of uh, uh, turns in his life that may have veered from this path, but nevertheless, he got that right. There's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person trying to, to suck in some measure of significance, trying to suck in some measure of purpose. Give me meaning. Give me some significance here. But it can never be filled by any created thing, he says. It can only be filled by God made known through Jesus Christ. And friends, Solomon is beginning to hint here. He's beginning to hint here that there is something going on beyond this physical world that will last beyond the grave. Take a look at verse 26 again. He says this, For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight, but to the sinner, but to the sinner He gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. And so we see there in, in blue at the beginning of verse 26, there's a promise. Solomon's hinting here. He's giving us a taste of what is coming. A taste of of taking off the blinders in full and realizing that there is so much more to this life than what we see under the sun. He hasn't taken them completely off, but he's hinting at it here. He says, For God's going to give wisdom and knowledge and joy to the man who is good in his sight. Blessing is coming both here and hereafter. Blessing is coming. To those who live wisely, to to those who live good in God's sight, but then to the contrast, but to the sinner, God gives the work of gathering and collecting that He may give to him who is good before God. Now the the last verb there, the last give that He may give to him who is good before God. In Hebrew, that's a a call infinitive construct which means absolutely nothing to you, but let me explain why it's significant. That verb is significant there. It's a different conjugation of the verb than the other gives in the text. That last give is with respect to ultimate and final purpose. And usually it takes the, it takes the context of future. That is to say, the final statement there that he, the sinner, may give to him who is good before God. The sinner's gathering and collecting. That's the work God has given him to do. He's amassing riches. He's amassing possessions. He's amassing wealth. He's looking under the sun. And Solomon says, he's doing all this, that he may ultimately and finally give all that he's gathered, all that he's accumulated, to the one who is good before God. You say, well, that's a really peculiar statement. You know what? We find that statement all over Scripture. I want to show you just two examples. In Job, this is what Job says of the wicked man. He says, Though the wicked man heaps up silver like dust and piles up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the just will wear it, and the innocent will divide the silver. And in the Proverbs, Solomon also writes, The wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Figurative language, no less. But, never, but, but it's proving a point here. We're, bring, we're coming to an ultimate significant point here in verses 24-26, to 26. so let's return there. And look, it says, hey, the sinner, all the work of gathering and collecting, all the work under the sun, all the hope for significance and meaning, all the riches that you've amassed, the one who doesn't take the blinders off, you're gathering it all for the righteous. All your possessions, all your riches are going to go to those who know of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. You will not take these things with you past the grave. The rewards that you think you're getting are going to pass on to those who know who God is. Solomon concludes, this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. And friends, that's the first time in the book the first time in the book of Ecclesiastes in which Solomon uses this phrase in a specific sense. Up until now, he suggested that all physical experience is vain. All is empty. All is futile. But here, here at the end of verse 26, Solomon's often repeated phrase is now in reference to a particular group of persons. This time, vanity is attributed to the one who has no view of God. This time, Vanity is attributed to the sinner in verse 26. And Solomon's basically saying here, he's saying, the height of vanity, you want to know the height of emptiness? You want to know the height of futility? It is found in the person who lives on this earth, toiling and laboring day and night, yet never comes to a revelation that there is something beyond this life. You want to know the height of vanity, the height of insignificance? It is living life with your blinders on for the entirety of it. Because you will be collecting and you will be gathering and you will be thinking that you're gaining something from it and when you die, it's going to pass on to those who know God. Solomon says, that, that's vanity. That's grasping for the wind. Here we find Solomon hinting at the final judgment of God upon all mankind. Those who have known the true God in faith will work uh, excuse me, those who have not known the true God in faith will work in this life and enjoy nothing in the life to come. By contrast, the man who is good in God's sight, I should say good—that a goodness that only comes by faith in Christ, that man, that woman, will have the prospect of reward in the life to come. And so, how do we come to a conclusion here? Now, I was thinking, how do we, how do we bring chapter two to a close? And I thought of the, uh, I just thought of the concept of of uh, giving gifts to your children. It's it's often the case that we give a gift to our to our children, right? We we hand them a gift, and when the child takes that gift, what do they usually do with that gift? They open it, right? But do they stand there and, and, and just kind of look at the, the adult who's given to him and say, thank you so much. I really appreciate this gift. I treasure it. I'm so grateful for what you've given me. Does a child do that? No. What does a child do when he gets a present or she gets a present? They take it and they're like, woohoo! And they run over here and they're ripping it off and they're opening it up and whoa, a new train! Whoa, a new doll! Look at that gift! awesome and they're playing with and they're throwing it around and they're having a great old time they don't take the gift and say thanks i really appreciate this no that's not what children do we try to teach them that i can't tell you how many times we've been trying to teach Bennett you know Bennett when you get a gift when somebody gives you a gift you take it you look at them you say thank you very much thank you very much and he, he tries he doesn't do it all that well his his Bobob and his Boo, which is Grandma and Grandpa, they give him all sorts of gifts. And does he ever say thank you anymore? Occasionally. Occasionally. Okay. Well, we're working on that, right? What's my point? Children rarely say thank you when they get a gift. We teach them, we try to teach them, we try to tell them, we try to remind them as parents, say thank you, don't open it yet, turn to them and say thank you, and yet children just don't get it. Their instinct is to take the gift, to run over and open it and play with it. Solomon is saying, at the end of chapter 2, don't be like those children. Don't be like those children who take the gifts of God and run away with it and open them and play with them to their heart's content. Solomon's conclusion is this. He says, if I were to break it down, Solomon says here, enjoy the gifts of God gifts of pleasure, gifts of accomplishment, gifts of riches, gifts of wisdom, and the fruit of your labor. But do not be consumed by these things. Remember to give thanks to the giver. Of good things, and not merely relish in the gifts themselves. Put the gifts of life in their proper place, for lasting meaning and significance are not found in them, but in God alone. That's the point of what Solomon is saying at the end of Ecclesiastes 2. He's saying these things are gifts, but don't grab out of them more than they can give you. Instead, when you receive that gift, that gift of pleasure, that gift of wisdom, that gift of the fruit of your labor, that gift of accomplishment, that gift of money, of riches, you've amassed something. Turn to the one who's given it to you and say, Thank you for that. I will use what you've given me in a way that is glorifying to you. And I will not pull from these things, these gifts, more satisfaction than they can offer me. If I do, it will be vain. Let us remember to thank God for His gifts. Let us not pull from them more than they can offer us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I... I struggle and toil with this book of Ecclesiastes myself. Father, You know that to be true. It's difficult to grasp the concepts, to grasp the the meaning of it, to understand what You're trying to tell us through this Word. But yet, Lord, it seems to be the case that through King Solomon, You're communicating to us, say thank You. Say thank You for the gifts of life. Don't worship the gifts of life. Say thank you for them. Recognize who they come from. Put them in their proper place. Father, help us to do that. Help us to not extract from the things of this life more than they can offer us. But may they remind us to look at You. To look at Your face. And to say thank You for it, Lord. Father, I pray that, uh, that You would just impress this truth upon our hearts this day. That we would be a people who says thank you. We would be a people who is grateful for what you have given to us, the good gifts. Thank you, Father. Every good and every perfect gift is from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.